Last week, our sermon began looking at the parable that Jesus teaches about Lazarus and the rich man. And I want to start there again today, focus on the end of that parable. Because after this man who had lived his entire life for himself, consuming and building his own kingdom, completely apathetic to what God is calling him and what God is commanding him to do, He now finds himself confronted with that harsh reality of an eternity separated from God. And his first move, his first reaction is to begin negotiating for himself, trying to get a little relief from the suffering and the difficulty that he's going through. And then when he finds out that that's not going to work, he starts to think about his family. And he calls out to Abraham and he says, listen, I have these five brothers And they're living the same kind of life that I'm living. They're doing the same things that I was doing. They're following that same path. And they're going to end up exactly where I am unless somebody warns them. But Abraham's response is, they have what they need. They've got Moses. They've got the prophets. They have all that they need to have what Lazarus has. But the rich man says, just let me go back and tell them. Because if they see me come back from the dead, then surely they'll believe. But why would they need something like that? And that was Abraham's point, right? Why would they need anything spectacular? They have everything that they need. They have the truth of a God who loves them enough that they would, that he would meet with them where they are. That he would speak to them through Moses and through the prophets. That he would give them all the words and all the truth they need for salvation. But we see this happen all through Jesus' ministry as well. Jesus is going from town to town, teaching about the good news of the kingdom of God. Telling the people that God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, was now with them in their midst. That he had come to them where they are to meet them where they were because they couldn't do anything to get to him. And so he says, I'm here, I'm with you, and I've brought with me a kingdom that you don't have to pay to get into. An inheritance that you couldn't ever earn on your own, but I'm giving it to you free of charge so that you can come to me and be with me. And yet Jesus is preaching that beautiful gospel everywhere he goes. And there are people who time and time again reject him. You see, one of the hardest lessons of the kingdom is that not everyone will enter into it. One of the hardest things about the good news of the gospel is that not everyone will receive it. And even Abraham looks at the rich man in Jesus' parable and he says, even if you crawled out of the grave and went to them, even if the dead man was raised to life, they wouldn't believe. And so today we're going to look at a few of Jesus' teachings in three separate passages in chapter 12 and 13 of the book of Luke. And we're going to see Jesus reveal a very hard truth and try to understand how we navigate a world where people will ignore, reject, and sometimes even hate the kingdom of God. And if you're a believer here, we're going to talk about what it means for us to live a life that honors and glorifies God in those circumstances, but also how we can be a picture of the gospel everywhere that we go in hopes that some would come and trust in Christ through our works and through our words. 
And so we're going to read a few different passages here that are a little disconnected. And so follow along with me. We'll begin in Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53, and then read chapter 13, 6 through 9, and then chapter 13, 22 through 30. And so from Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53, Jesus says, I come to cast fire on the earth and would that it already were kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Then continuing to chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking full fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And then finally, from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside to knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you for your word, even in the midst of it being a very difficult word. And this is the second week in a row where the words of Jesus are are hard and convicting and, and strike us deeply to the core. But God, we also remember that there is is beauty even in the difficult passages. As we see your character revealed, as we see the gospel put on display, but God, also as we see the need for us to go out and to do the work you've called us to do of sharing our faith, of sharing the good news of the kingdom of God with those around us. And so, Father, I just pray this morning that you teach us to see with your eyes that we recognize the reality that not everyone will follow Christ, that not everyone will enter the kingdom of God, but also to understand the importance of knowing that you have given us the mission to go out and to spread the good news of the kingdom so that some will. 
And so, Father, we put salvation in your hands and we trust that to you. But God, teach us to be good stewards of the gift you've given us to go out and to love our neighbors in word and action and to put the kingdom on display in all that we do. So, Father, speak to us through your word. Teach us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. And when I read the parable of the fig tree, I was feeling pretty good because I have a fig tree. My good friend Lee gave me a fig tree, and it's producing a lot of fruit. And so I, well, at least I felt good before I talked to Lee this morning, because I saw a lot of figs on my tree, and I was really excited about that. And then I talked with Lee and his fig tree at his house, because Lee is some sort of wizard with these trees, has clusters of figs, and mine has no clusters. And so now I'm a little sad because I only have single figs growing all over it, and Lee has this majestic clustered fig tree. But either way, I was feeling pretty good about my fig tree when I read the story, because here's this guy that has a whole vineyard, right? And he has this one fig tree that he's been coming to for three years, ready for this thing to produce fruit. And so he comes to the tree for the third year in a row, and he wants to get some fruit from it. And just like the two years prior, there's nothing. And so he's just had enough because he's got a vineyard and this is prime real estate and he needs these trees to produce fruit so that he can have them for his own well-being and probably for for his financial well-being. And so this tree is taking up valuable space that he could take it away and replace it with a tree that produces very good fruit. Last week, we talked about the importance of time. And we saw Jesus teach us that all of us are living on borrowed time. And that there will be a time when all of us, that time runs out for us and we'll have to stand before a just and a holy God and we'll be subject to judgment. And this tree is on that line in Jesus' parable. But while we recognize that there is time and that one day we'll be out of it, there's something else important in these parables that Jesus is teaching us about the character of God that we need to pay attention to. And he reveals that in a That's such a subtle way here in this parable, but it's so beautiful because the master comes to this tree again and for the third year, there's no fruit and he's tired and he says, you know what? Time is up for this tree. It's time for this tree to be cut down and he goes to his vine dresser and he says, you're in charge of all this. This tree has failed me three years in a row. I want it cut down and we need to use this space for something else. But the vine dresser says, listen, I know, it's been, I know it's been three years now, but I think there's something to this tree. I think it's going to work. And so just give me one more year, and then I can dig around it. I can care for this tree. I can put the fertilizer on it. And then next year, if there's no fruit on this tree next year, then we'll cut it down. But I think there's a chance that this tree is going to bear good fruit. The tree produced nothing. Its time was up. It was time to cut it down. And yet the master of the field gave it more time. And so there we see something so crucial about the character of God. And we see this on display throughout the whole narrative of Scripture. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. There's this amazing story in the Old Testament where God is is set to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because these are two evil cities filled with sin and it rejected God completely. And he tells Abraham his plan. He says, these cities have got to go. And Abraham says, no, 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 God. Listen, would you really want to wipe out these entire cities and take out the righteous with the unrighteous? 
let me go. And if I can find 50 righteous people, will you spare these cities? And God says, absolutely. If you go find 50 righteous people, I will relent. And what an amazing relationship between God and Abraham that he is trusting Abraham with this and Abraham is willing to move the heart of God. And so Abraham goes and he walks through the cities and he starts to think, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to find 50 people here. This is a really unrighteous place. This is a really sinful place. And so he comes back to God and he says, "Uh, I know I said 50, but maybe we could go 50 minus five. Maybe if I could find 45 people, and God says, okay, that's fine. If you find 45 people, then I'll relent. He looks, he says, okay, maybe not. Maybe, what about 40? What about 30? God, what if I can find 20 people who are righteous? What if I can find 10? And finally, Abraham says, after after going back and forth with God so many times, he says, what if I can find just one righteous person? And God says, absolutely. If you can find one righteous person, then I'll relent of what I said I was going to do. And so God gives these cities, entire cities, time after time after time. Think about the story of Jonah. The reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh is that Jonah hated Nineveh. And he wanted God to destroy this city in a very opposite direction from Abraham. And when Jonah has finally had his fill with God as the city of Nineveh repents and God saves this city, Jonah looks at God and he says, I didn't want to come here because I knew that you are a merciful God of a steadfast love, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And I knew that you were going to give them another chance, even though they didn't deserve it. In 2 Peter, Peter writes, That God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some would count slowness, but he is patient with you, desiring that none would perish and that everyone would come to repentance. Our God is a patient God. He is a God of multiple chances. In fact, he's a God who is willing to wait past a reasonable amount of time to see sinners repent. And Jesus teaches that in the parable of the fig tree, that God is a God who is willing to wait, even if he knows that nothing is going to change. But he is also a sovereign God, and he is also all-knowing. And he knows full well that even if some people had three eternities, they would never come to trust in him. This is the story with the rich man's brothers in Jesus' parable. Abraham says, even if you drag your crusty, bony, decrepit, dead body out of a grave and you appear before your brothers and you say, guys, you need to change your life and follow God. They have got their path set and they are not going to turn away from it. In fact, Abraham says, even if they were to see the dead raised, they wouldn't believe. And of course, Jesus there is foretelling something even more profound. Because there would be a time when people would see the dead raised back to life and still wouldn't believe. As Christ, as God incarnate, as the God in human form, put himself on the cross for our sins, died, and then three days later rose again, and still people would turn away from that message of truth. And so with that in mind, Jesus tells another parable. And that's what we find here in Luke 13, 22 through 30 this parable of a narrow door. Now, I'm not particularly claustrophobic. In fact, 
I prefer small spaces. I feel vulnerable in open spaces. And if it's really bright and really open, like a big field gives me some deep anxiety because I feel like I could be attacked on all sides. I've never been attacked, but if it was going to happen, I feel like it would happen in a very wide open space. And so the smaller place I can be and I feel cozy and I feel warm and I feel cared for. I do not, however, like crowds. And crowds of people tend to make me claustrophobic. And so this story that Jesus tells makes me very claustrophobic. The visual of a narrow door with a lot of people getting in just feels like a large sporting event. And I get a little iffy in those things. I'm trying to walk through the gate and there are a lot of people there. But that's the picture that Jesus paints. He says there's this narrow door that leads to the kingdom. And a lot of people are trying to get into it. And he says you should strive to enter into that narrow door. This has got to be a frustrating answer for the person who asked this question. He says, will those who are saved be a few? And Jesus' immediate answer is strive to enter through the narrow door. Why? Because on the other side of that door is the kingdom. Jesus says on the other side of that door, that's the place where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets are reclining at the kingdom of God. And he says, people are coming from all over who want to be in there because on the other side of that is this good news that I've been promising you. It's this inheritance that lasts for all of eternity. It's the reward for all of your good works. Everything that's taken place, everything that I am teaching you is on the other side of that narrow door. And so you should strive to enter into it. But he also tells us that that door is narrow and difficult to enter. And in Matthew, when Jesus tells a similar parable to this, he says that there is a narrow gate that leads to life, but broad is the way or wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And so not only is the narrow door difficult to get into, but the alternative is much easier. And as a whole, we, humanity, we tend to the averages that we choose the easier path. And if it's going to be a struggle, if it's going to be difficult, if it's going to cost us something, if it's going to have us moving in a different direction, we would rather go with the flow of traffic and go through the wide gate because it's easier and less claustrophobic and costs us less. And so Jesus is drawing this picture here saying there's a narrow gate here and it's difficult. And so it's going to definitely be the road less traveled. And it makes sense that this narrow door would get less action. But not only does Jesus say that less people are going through it, but as we talked about last week, this door is on a timer. And he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you will begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I do not know where you've come from. And when Jesus starts to talk this way about the people crying out and saying, Didn't you, weren't, weren't we here when you were teaching? You were in our streets preaching and we might have even eaten at a table with you. And now Jesus looks at them and says, no, the door's closed. It's too late. I don't know where you've come from. This is an incredibly desperate picture that Jesus paints. And it's a hard truth and honestly, one that makes me uncomfortable even teaching. But it's something that's incredibly important for us to realize. And if you're here and you've trusted in Christ for salvation, we need to know and to recognize that there will be people and even people in our lives who will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so what do we do? 
What do we do with this information? What do we do with what Jesus is teaching us here? Because scripture is always pointing us in a direction and causing us to move, but especially a passage like this. Well, first and foremost, we try to enter the narrow gate. For each and every one of us, that's where this starts, this desire to follow after Christ and to be saved by grace, that it begins with trusting in Jesus. And like we talked about last week, repenting of our sins, turning away from that and following Christ as he leads us through the narrow gate, going through the waters of baptism, serving Christ in the church universal and the church local and being his followers. And then once we've experienced that, once we've found that salvation in Jesus, once we've gone through baptism, then we should be thankful. Salvation can be so very easy to take for granted. And the longer that we are saved, the longer that we're followers of Christ, if you've been a Christian for a year or five years or ten years, the longer that we go through church and Christian life, the easier it can be to recognize that this is just part of who I am. And the thankfulness can begin to subside. But this parable that Jesus teaches us should open our eyes to the fact that we should be grateful and thankful every single day for the salvation that God has given us. And so when we sing songs about the salvation that comes through Jesus, we should sing them passionately. When we read passages of scripture about God who reached down and saved us out of the depths of where we were, even though we were sinners, even though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, that should move our hearts to worship and thankfulness. We should always be a joyful and thankful people. But then we also need to be passionate and diligent in evangelism. Because we can find ourselves on one of two sides of this. We can forget the truth that Jesus teaches us here, that there are people who are rejecting the gospel. There are people who are lost, are people who are heading towards the other gate. And it's our responsibility to go out and share the gospel with them. We can forget that that's true and become complacent with just being in the rhythm of our own life and doing our churchy thing and moving on. Or we can find ourselves so overwhelmed with this reality that the gate is narrowed, it leads to the kingdom of God, and this other is so broad that we can feel like there's nothing I can do, there's nothing that I have to offer, and so I might as well not try at all. But we have to be people who are passionate and diligent in sharing our faith with those in our lives of telling people about the good news of Jesus, of sharing the truth about how the God of the universe loved us so much that even though we were rebellious, even though we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he offered his only son to take our place, to take our shame, to take our guilt on the cross and then raise again three days later to give us a promise of new life. Those words should be on our lips and in our hands every single day. And as we do that, if we are faithful to share our faith and to, to teach others about Christ, we see evidence in Scripture that when we're faithful to do that, God is going to be faithful in our work, and he is going to bring salvation into the lives of some of the people in our lives. And when that happens, we need to celebrate. When we see someone come to faith in Jesus and walk through that narrow door, we need to throw a party. When we see baptisms in the life of our church, we need to be excited about what God has done and it should be something that moves our heart again to be thankful for our own salvation and celebrate the salvation that God has brought in the life of these people. But on the other side, we also have to be ready for rejection. That there will be times that we share our faith with people, even people that we love. And it might be hostile, it might just be a simple, I don't think that's for me. 
And that can be devastating and crushing and overwhelming and defeating. But we have to be prepared emotionally and spiritually knowing that there will be times when we share our faith and they won't listen. Because if they didn't listen to Jesus, there will be people who don't listen to us as well. And so we have to be ready for that outcome and to be, again, as emotionally and spiritually prepared as we possibly can be. But then most importantly, we need to pray. Because all through Scripture, we're reminded that salvation belongs to God. And so we need to pray for our friends. We need to pray for our family members. We need to pray for the people at our schools or at our jobs. We need to pray for the people in our lives, even our enemies, even the people that we haven't met yet, that God will begin moving in their hearts and preparing them to hear the gospel so that they would respond with salvation. But one thing is true. We cannot be apathetic or inactive when it comes to to answering the call to go out and to share our faith and to lead people toward that narrow door. Then in verse 12, Jesus, excuse me, in chapter 12, verse 35, 49, I'm sorry. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. That is a strong, powerful introduction. That's one of those thesis statements that will really get your attention. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would it that I already have been kindled? I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. And then in verse 51, Jesus says something deeply troubling. He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. These are shocking things to hear Jesus say. Because we know that Jesus is called the Prince of Peace and the Wonderful Counselor. Advent, maybe my favorite season on the Christian calendar, we have this candle in the front, and one of those candles represents peace because we know and we believe that Jesus came to bring peace to earth and that one day he'll come again to finish what he started and to bring complete and total peace. And so it's shocking now to hear Jesus says, don't think that I came to bring peace, but rather division. But in the context of everything that we've been learning over the past two weeks, this actually makes a lot of sense. Think about the picture Jesus paints us through these two doors. There's only two. There's a narrow door and there's a wide door. There's those who get in the narrow and those who don't. And so it draws a very distinct dividing line and creates two groups of people. And every single person, every single man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever been born, that's ever taken a breath, finds themselves on one side or the other. And we are fairly contentious as a people, and we always have been. We're always looking for something to divide. And sometimes that's things that are very serious, the things that we care for deeply, the things that are right and wrong and all of that. Sometimes it's as simple as sports and music and movies, and we can divide over such small things, and we can be contentious over such little things. And so it makes sense that a divide this stark would create division. You see, Jesus brought a kingdom of hope, a kingdom that brings new life, a kingdom that brings an eternal inheritance, but it also inherently brings division. Jesus begins in verse 49 by saying, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it already were kindled. 
And then he says this, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. And of course, on this side of the gospel, on this side of the resurrection, we know what Jesus is talking about. We know that for Jesus to accomplish this salvation in our world, that he was going to have to go and he was going to have to suffer on our behalf. And we know that it caused Jesus great anguish. We see those heart-wrenching pictures of Christ in the garden before his death and before his trial. We see Jesus going to the cross. We see Jesus suffering and dying. We see Jesus praying to God saying, if there's any other way we can do this, let's go another way, but I'll do whatever I need to do. And so Jesus reminding us here, or for the disciples foreshadowing, that the kingdom of God was going to have to be brought in the world through violence but through violence that was going to be poured out on him. And a kingdom that's brought through violence will certainly face violence. And Jesus says this division is going to be deep. He says for from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. He's saying the divide that's going to happen is going to even break in the middle of families, in the middle of communities. It's going to be sharp and it's going to be shocking. And what makes the gospel beautiful is also what makes it divisive. Because remember, as we've been talking about the kingdom of God, we've seen that it's not for any particular person or kind of person. And it would make sense that if the gospel, if this, if this faith, if this religion was just for one group of people from this place or that spoke this language or that did these things, we could say, oh, okay, well, that's just for them and there's something else for me. But the gospel is not for any one kind of person. The Bible teaches that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People from all different places, from all different backgrounds, from all different places all over the world, from all different worldviews. The salvation breaks into those things and the life of someone could be saved, that they could be saved by grace in the middle of a place where that's not welcome. And they could find themselves outcast and ostracized. We're reminded that there's no entry fee into the gospel. That there is no special thing that you have to do. And so anyone can trust in Christ. And so that causes divisions when people who are seen as outwardly sinful, we saw this happen all through Jesus' ministry. When prostitutes would sit at the feet of Jesus and they would find his grace and mercy and the Pharisees and the religious leaders would sit in the background angry because this person who lived their lives in sin was now being welcomed in the presence of God. It also requires life change. And life change can be uncomfortable, not only for the person who makes those changes, but for the people around them who have been with them through all those times. And so all of a sudden, when someone trusts into Christ and they repent and turn away from what they were doing and start walking towards Jesus, it can make people uncomfortable, it can cause conflict, and even can cause broken relationships. For Christians, we're called to be peacemakers. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says one of the things that calls us blessed is that we are peacemakers, that we do all that we can to bring unification, to bring reconciliation, to treat others well. Paul says that so long as it depends on us, we should live at peace with everyone. And so that's our driving force, and that's what Jesus teaches us to be. That's that fruit of the Spirit that we have in our lives, that we go out with the intention of being peaceful and making peace with everyone in our lives. But that effort will not always be reciprocated. Even if we do our best to be peacemakers in every situation, in every relationship that we have, there will be times when someone else does not want to be at peace with us. 
In fact, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, they hate me and they're going to hate you too. There will always be people who are in opposition to the kingdom of God. And while there's definitely a spectrum, all of us may at some point in time experience division, oppression, or even in some places in our world, persecution for trusting in Christ. And so what do we do with that? How do we live in a world, if we're going to follow Jesus, live in a world knowing that there will be times when we may have to face division or difficulty or even oppression because of our faith? The first thing that we do is that we should be aware and we should never be surprised. When Jesus sent out the disciples to go and teach about the kingdom of God, he told them to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. To go out and to be peacemakers, but to recognize that there may be times when they have to walk away from a situation or that they may face difficulty. In fact, Jesus prepared his disciples saying, listen, you may even get drugged before the courts and you may face real persecution for this, but don't fear in those moments because in those moments, the Holy Spirit will intercede for you and give you the words that you need to say. But know that it's a possibility that you may face difficulty because of opposition to the kingdom. And so we need to be aware of this so that when we go out to share our faith or when we try to bring peace to a difficult situation or when we may go to try to love someone who is our enemy, that they may respond to us not in kind. And if we're not prepared for that, in the same way that facing rejection as we share our faith can be devastating, this can be absolutely devastating and hurtful and not simply cause hurt feelings, but can cause us to recoil and not want to do what God is calling us to do. And so we need to be aware and never surprised that this is a possibility. But we also need to learn to lower our defenses. Because oftentimes what happens is when we read passages like this or when we're told about people who would be against the gospel, then we put on, we put on our, our, our bulletproof vests, right? We grab our shield and our helmets and we say, not me. Not going to happen to me. I'm going to make sure that I'm tough enough to deal with this. And the reality is, especially I think in American Christianity, we tend to be some of the most defensive people in the world. We don't want anybody to say anything about us. We don't want anybody to cross us. We don't want anybody to want to take away our rights or anything like that. If someone says anything about us or our faith or our church, we get all up in arms and we become very defensive. Because we tend to be more concerned with our religious liberty and our feelings than we are our work to go out and to be good messengers of the kingdom. And so we have to lower our shields. We need to wake up in the morning and be less worried about defending our faith and more worried about sharing it. We need to be more concerned about going out and loving our enemies than we are worried that our enemies might have something in store for us. We have to lower those defenses so that we can, with the same vulnerability of Jesus, go out into a world that there may be hostility there, but also remember as Jesus went from town to town, there were people who left their lives behind to follow him, and he treated them all with gentleness and kindness. And when people brought accusations against him, he handled it with his mouth closed and followed God everywhere that he led. We also need to love our enemies. A constant theme through all of Scripture is that God's people love their enemies, and we do this because the Bible teaches us that because of our sin, we were at one time God's enemies, and he loved us anyway. 
And so we have to recognize that, yes, there may be people who are in opposition to us and people who don't like us because of what we believe or how we live, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't take our responsibility away. We still go out as peacemakers and as people who are motivated by love because we serve a God who is motivated by love. We serve a God who is love, and because God first loved us and now we can love him, it's our calling and our responsibility to go out and to love those around us, even our enemies. We should seek peace. And that means that in times when things are are contentious, when relationships may be broken, we find division in our lives, it is on us to seek that peace, to forgive 70 times 7, to go and to be peacemakers, but also to recognize, like Jesus said, when we're in a place where nothing is being accomplished, also understanding how to peacefully walk away and preserve whatever relationship can remain. We also have to learn to suffer well. And we have taken some of that out of our church life because we've become so comfortable. It's easy. And thank God we can practice our faith easily in this country. Thank God that we don't really have to worry about genuine oppression or persecution here because of the way that we worship God and because of what we do. But also there will be times when we are called to suffer for the gospel and we have to be ready to suffer well. To find ourselves like Paul in a jail cell singing praises to God. To count it as pure joy when we encounter various trials that come from within or from without. To learn how to trust God in the good times and in the difficult times so that when people see us in our opposition, they will recognize that we trust in God more than we fear men and more than we fear our circumstances. And then again, the most important thing that we can do is pray. To pray for those who persecute us, to pray for those who stand in opposition to the gospel, and to continue the work of sharing our faith everywhere that we go and loving our neighbors as ourselves and putting the love of Christ on display. This is a hard thing, but it's true. And we can't ignore it and we can't gloss over it because these are the words of Christ. And while we can't control what other people think, what other people say, what other people do, or how they may feel, we can control ourselves. And we know that if you are a follower of Christ, that you have been given a mission, that you have been given a calling, that it is God's will for every single one of us that we would do what God has called us to do by loving him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so it's our responsibility to do exactly that to daily follow after Christ, to keep walking through that narrow door and always being aware of the people around us who don't know who God is, who don't know about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And even though we may be trying to hold them back from something that they will fall into anyway, we know it's our responsibility to do everything within our power to share that good news and to see people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as we do that, pray that God would bless our work because again, it's not about your giftedness. It's not about what you can do. It's not about any sort of skill set that you have or the words that you can offer up. Salvation belongs to God. And so as you go out to love your neighbors and your enemies, as you go out to be peacemakers in a violent and contentious world, as you go out to spread the good news of the gospel like seed on all different types of road, pray that God would prepare the hearts and the ears of the people that you're ministering to 
And that through our work that God would bring salvation in the lives of those that he's put in our lives. And on those beautiful moments when we get to see someone's life changed by the gospel through our work, let's celebrate and throw a party and be thankful as members of God's kingdom.